1 Peter chapter 4. We saw last week at the start of this chapter how we're called to put off the sins and the worldliness that once came so natural. The time that is past is sufficient for living in that way. Now we're called to live in a way that, that is pleasing to the Lord, that is delightful to Him, recognizing that, uh, that the time draws near when God will draw us to Himself. Well, starting now at verse 7, we're going to look at verses 7 through 11, the, the center part of this chapter. Uh, and consider how, how we are to live. If we're not to live according to those worldly ways that we once indulged, how are we to live? And the Apostle writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen indeed. Beloved servants... Christ our King. If you go to a foreign land, if you do some traveling outside of the U.S., the likelihood is extremely high. No matter how well you prepare, no matter how well you study the places to which you go, the likelihood is extremely high that almost everyone you meet will be able to identify you as an American. We spent a summer in Edmonton during our time in seminary. Now, I'm as American as they come, but, you know, I thought, while we're in Canada, we should try to blend in, we should try to fit. And yet, despite our best efforts, people just knew. They heard it in how we spoke. It was visible in our mannerisms. Certain things that we just assumed, they didn't. And other things that never occurred to us, they readily assumed. For instance, did you know that Canadian stores don't sell American cheese? Seems pretty straightforward, right? American cheese. We had little kids. My wife searched for American cheese, couldn't find it. Finally asked somebody and they said, American cheese? Oh, you mean Kraft Singles. Okay. (laughs) There were so many examples of that, that just demonstrated that we were not at home and showed everybody around us exactly where we were from. And, of course, the same thing works in reverse. I went to school in seminary with a a number of Canadians, and those guys were unmistakable. It wasn't just the accent, although that readily gave them away, but, but they were unfailingly polite in situations that would lead Americans to show their annoyance. And they were shocked at things that to us seemed quite normal. You see, the way that we're raised... The expectations cultivated in us, our attitudes, all these serve to identify us. They show the people around us, this one is from this place and belongs to this people. Now that's true with our nationality, but it also is true with our faith, with our spiritual citizenship. 
That is nearly inescapable. Rare is the person who is able to convincingly camouflage where he belongs. Now, at, at the root of our being, our ultimate commitment spiritually is going to be to one of two kingdoms. Now, I'm not talking about the two kingdoms view that we've studied in the past. I'm talking about the two kingdoms, the two cities that have been identified throughout the life of the church. That each one of us can belong to the kingdom of men or to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of men is the citizenship with which we were conceived and born. These are the people who are committed to the ways of the flesh, to the ways of the world, to the rebellion against God that rises up naturally within our hearts. But for those who have been given faith in Christ, for those who have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, they have a new citizenship. No longer are they members of the citizen or the kingdom of men. They're now members of the kingdom of God. Although we're also Americans in our earthly function, spiritually we are members of the kingdom of God. And if we truly are citizens of that kingdom, then that should be evident in all that we do, in the way that we speak, in the things that we love. And in fact, Peter shows us in this text, we're not just citizens, we're ambassadors. When citizens travel to places that are not their home, they do so for themselves. They represent themselves. Their behavior reflects on them. But ambassadors are called not merely to represent themselves, but their whole kingdom and their king. Not merely to act as individuals, but to act as representatives of their kingdom. And that's what we are to do as Christians. We are to be ambassadors wherever we go, to whomever we speak... We are to be ambassadors of Christ and His soon-to-be-revealed kingdom. And it's to help us do that that Peter gave us the text before us, where he shows us how God calls His people to act as ambassadors of Christ's soon-to-be-revealed kingdom. And doing that means, first of all, cultivating self-control that allows us to deepen communion with God, with our King. Peter begins this passage by describing the situation we face. The end of all things is at hand. Now what does he mean by the end of all things? Some would say, well, the end, the annihilation of the earth. But that's not really what we expect. We see that in 2 Peter. We don't expect the annihilation of all things. We expect the earth to be renewed. Made better than new, even. So it's not that, and it doesn't, doesn't speak of the end of life, the end of all things, because as Christians, we don't have an end. We have some transitions, but we don't have an end. When he talks about the end of all things, he's talking about the judgment, the end of this present age, this present era. When God will make all things new, when all men are judged, when everything radically transforms because suddenly all the creation and everyone remaining in it 
is devoted to glorifying God. So the end of this fallen age, the end of this present era is at hand. And therefore all that we do, all that we speak, all that we desire ought to be done in the light of that recognition. Do you live in the expectation of the end of this era? Do you recognize an urgency in our age? Making it essential that we prepare for the end. And that we take God seriously at every moment. I mean, do you, young people, do you understand that any day, any hour, any moment, we could be deafened by the sound of angelic trumpets announcing the coming of Christ, and we could be summoned before His throne to answer for all that we have done and all that we have desired and how we've lived our lives and, and where we've oriented ourselves. Are you ready for that day? That's what Peter's asking us. Are you ready for that day? Are you living in that expectation? If you're trusting it all in yourself, you're not. If you think you're the one who has to fix things, you're the one who has to be prepared, that you have to answer for how... You, you can't do it. It's only if you're resting in Christ. If only, it's only if you find all your hope, all your strength in Him that you're ready for that day. So you need to ask yourself, am I ready? Is my faith in Christ or is it somewhere else? The best way to prepare for that time is by cultivating a life aimed at deepening our communion with God. And to that end, Peter gives us a twofold command. First, be self-controlled. He calls us to cultivate a mind, a way of thinking that is wise and intentional. God wants us not to be pushed and pulled and carried away in our mind by all the temptations of the world, by all the desires of the flesh, by every passing fad of scholarship. No, He wants us to be self-controlled and intentional and to that end be sober-minded. It's a great translation, by the way, because the, the verb there literally speaks of not being drunk, not being inebriated in the mind. When you're drunk, you lose self-control. You lose the ability to restrain yourself. And that's how we are to be in the way that we think, in the way that we desire, in the, the way that we process. The Lord wants us to be focused for the sake of our prayers. You see, if we would be good citizens of the kingdom, much less ambassadors, we need to be self-controlled, constant, and intentional in our prayers. Because prayer, prayer is the way that we have communion with God. Kids, understand that. Prayer isn't just the way that we ask God for what we need, right? It's not just making sure that He knows what's going on with us so that He can... No, it's not that. That's part of what we do in prayer. But God already knows those things. That's just us confessing, I trust you for this situation. But prayer is meant to be relationship. When mom and dad sit down maybe after dinner and they talk about their day and they talk about what's going on or they go out on a date or for a walk and they just spend time together, that's communion. They're, they're just reconnecting with each other. They're enjoying one another. They're, they're sharing the things that really matter to them. And that's what prayer is meant to be for us with God. Sharing with Him. 
deepening our relationship together. But the thing is, that doesn't just happen. Though we've trusted in Christ, though we've put our hope in Him, that doesn't mean that we've cultivated a relationship with our Heavenly Father. We need to set aside time for that. We need to focus our energy on that. We need to be intentional about it or it won't happen. Especially today. We, are, we live a life that is so filled with noise. There is always noise. There's the noise of television. There's the noise of other technology. There's the ever-present phone that's just, just one pocket away, right? Not to mention all the hustle and bustle and hurry and, of, of the world all around us. That's always moving, always present. And when you are focused on that, when you're surrounded by that and it's permeating your life, you can't focus on the Lord. We need to take intentional time to focus on Him which requires self-control, which requires a sober mind. It's kind of funny, the times that I've attended a convention for RYS, they have a strict rule at convention, no electronic devices. One of my favorite rules. It's hard for me, too. Kids aren't alone. But it's really fun to watch the first day. Because invariably, all of their leaders collected their phones on the bus or in the van or at the airport, put them all in a bag. They're here in case there's an emergency, but you may have them. And for the first hour or two, they're all looking around. They'll, they'll stand there for a minute and they go, oh, oh, it's not there. And they don't know what to do with their hands and they don't know where to look. And, they don't, and, and all of a sudden they realize they can talk to people. It's weird, it's awkward, it's strange, but it's kind of fun, right? That's what we need to do with God. You need to put the phone aside and not take it with you and go for a walk. Or leave it in the other room with the ringer off because the conversation you're about to have is far more important than anyone who might call. That's what it means to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. When you start doing that regularly, frequently, your relationship with God deepens. Your perception of His presence becomes more real. Your reliance on Him becomes more continuous. And you start living in a way that demonstrates that relationship, that demonstrates your love for the Lord. That's the second thing we see in this passage. If you're living a life that cultivates that relationship with God, His character will increasingly be seen in you and it will become evident that you're His ambassador. In that section, we find grammatically three parallel statements and each one, each one aims to describe those who are being addressed in verse 7. Those who are expecting the coming of the end of this age. Those who are being self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of their prayers. This is... This is how you should demonstrate that. Some of the ways you should demonstrate that in your life. Employing your spiritual gifts to display love from God. First of all, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now most folks, when they think of love, they think of an emotion. Because that's what our culture describes love as, as an emotion. But true love, biblical love, is bigger than that. Biblical love is 
an intentional decision to put me last in order to focus on, in order to meet the needs of someone else. It's choosing to sacrifice doing what they need or what they desire rather than what I need or desire. It's choosing to be patient and kind, blessing even the one who has offended me. It's choosing to be selfless, seeking good for others rather than seeking what's pleasant for me. True love is Jesus Christ. Departing intentionally from the glory of heaven so that He could live for our sake in the midst of sin and rebellion and humility. Dying on the cross for people who were still His enemies, who were calling for His death. That's love. And that's what we're called to have for one another, for our fellow Christians, members of the church. We're called to love each other the way Christ loved us. And that love is to be earnest. In other words, it's not just to be a show. It's not just to be an act. It's to flow from the heart. It's to be real. That is what arises in those who have been loved, who know they've been loved by Christ. We love because He first loved us. Having received His love, we cannot fail to love those around us. And when we exercise that kind of love, it covers a multitude of sins. Because we cease to allow those sins of others to separate us from them. Instead, we ignore the sins that are minor. And we lovingly confront them concerning the sins that are major so that they can repent or we can better understand and we can put it past us. And through all that, we cultivate unity that's based on the selfless love modeled for us by Christ. My friends, you need to understand how essential this is for the members, for the ambassadors of the kingdom of God. By our love for one another, we overcome the sins that would otherwise divide us. There is nothing that will divide a church like unaddressed sin between the members. When we offend one another, but we don't say anything about it, we just cherish it up, we just hold on to it, we just file that in our memory, you know, and we, we find all manner of ways to excuse it, to justify it. Well, I mean, you know, I forgive him, it's fine, you know, but I'm going to remember that. I'll just keep that in mind. And pretty soon you've got this catalog of all the ways that all these people have offended you. And what's the result of that? You don't invite them over. You don't spend time with them. You don't care about them. You don't meet their needs. Why? Because you don't like them very much. This one has offended me in this way, and this one has offended me in that way, and this one has done me wrong in this other way. And so there is consequently no unity between the members. We just all meet in the same place to individually worship God. That's not the body of Christ. That's not the kingdom of God. If we're to have the kind of unity that reveals us a single unified body of which Christ is the head, we need to forgive each other. That means when you offend me, i got to go to you and talk to you about it. And you got to realize that it come, comes in love so that you'll forgive me. Or not forgive me. So that you will repent and I can forgive you. Or so that you can explain that what you did wasn't what I thought it was. And we can come to an understanding. But we've got to have that conversation. And then I've got to forgive you without anybody making up for it, without any repayment of the wrong. I've got to model the love. That's hard. You know? And it's not just about when we're sinned against, when 
when your brother's hurting, you go and, and you love him. Not the way Job's friends loved him. Oh, yeah, you know, it's okay. I mean, it's all your fault. It's terrible that you did that thing. You deserved every bit of it, but oh, poor guy. No, not that. It's loving them, embracing them, being there for them, grieving with those who grieve and celebrating with those who celebrate. Spending time with each other. That's the kind of love that we're called to exercise toward each other. And when we do, we manifest Christ's love to each other. And then we need to put flesh on that by being hospitable to each other. It's interesting, the word rendered there as hospitable, show hospitality to each other. It's actually a compound verb from the words for love, phylos, and xenos, stranger. So it's stranger love or other love. It refers to a practice that was considered absolutely essential in the ancient Near East. When someone showed up at your door, you opened up to them. If they were hungry, you fed them. If they were naked, you clothed them. If it was evening, you put them up for the night and sent them off with breakfast in the morning. Hospitality, you see, is love that opens the door and says, come on in, we have a seat for you. And we are to be hospitable to one another. Now, there's places in Scripture that call us to be hospitable to the stranger, and that's important. But here, the emphasis is on one another. Because, you see... Unless we spend time together, we won't really have the unity of the body of Christ. Unless we spend time with each other, we can't really love each other because we don't really know each other. But when you spend time in one another's homes, when you sit together around a campfire in your backyard, when you work together on some project, when you do that, begin to love each other because you begin to know each other. Not just where does this person live, where does he work, what are his hobbies, but what really matters to him? With what sins does he struggle? What's the background that has molded and shaped him in this way? That's the kind of stuff that you learn when you spend time in one another's homes, when you exercise hospitality together. So the question is, are you doing that? Are you exercising hospitality toward the saints? Are you opening your homes to one another? We need to find excuses to do that. Start a game night to learn a new game that you don't know and to learn some new people that you don't really know. Invite folks from church to a birthday party, an anniversary party, so you can celebrate together. Invite them to a hymn sing, maybe focused around the young adults or around some of the older members or members who are in the same part of life as you. Find an excuse. Invite the people that you don't already know and aren't related to. Because after you've invited them, after you've spent time together, you will know them and you'll care about them. And meanwhile, we need to learn to serve each other with the gifts God has given. Use it He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. That word for serving is the word we get the word deacon from, diakoneo. It it speaks of lowly service. The kind that doesn't expect a reward, that doesn't expect an attaboy, that doesn't expect a name on a plaque somewhere. You see, we've all been given gifts for lowly service. Some of those gifts are public. You know, some have been given the gifts of teaching. Some have been given gifts of music. That's fine. But others have been given gifts of 
grieving with those who grieve. Or of caring for and inspiring little children. Or of explaining technology to those who find it difficult. The number, the, the, the variety of gifts are almost un- unlimited. But we're to use them selflessly for the saints. That doesn't mean that it's illegitimate to to make a career out of using your gifts. That's fine. But it also means that we're to use our gifts free of charge for those who really need them. And recognize that we often find our gifts from the needs that are set before us. You don't realize that you have a gift for compassionate listening until your friend is going through some stuff and needs someone to listen to him. You don't recognize that you have a gift for holding your friends accountable until your friend comes to you and says, I need somebody to hold me accountable. You don't realize realize that you have those gifts until the need presents itself. So look at the needs that that God sets before you and ask, can I meet that? Is that something I can do? And recognize that all of what Peter is commending in verses 8 through 10 are essential acts of ministry. I've said it before. Ministry is not the job of the pastor and the elders. Our job is to equip the church for works of ministry. We are all called to minister to one another. We're called to minister to one another in our times of need. We're called to minister to one another in in the face of immaturity. We're called to minister to each other in a whole raft of different ways that reveal the love and the compassion of Christ to each other and, incidentally, to the world around us as they watch us. Now, there's a temptation to think that that's a burden, to have to serve one another with with all those gifts, even to have to spend all that time in prayer. But it's not a burden, it's a privilege. The same is true for a person who's an ambassador of a country, Somebody's named an ambassador, they know they've got a mountain of work ahead of them. They're going to be working long hours every single day, but they don't count it a burden. They count it a privilege to be able to represent their nation that way, to be able to represent their nation on the world stage. And so it is with our ambassadorship. So our final thing that we see here is that we're to cherish stewardship opportunities to devote glory to God. It's important for us to remember, as verse 10 says, that we are stewards of God's very great, varied grace. Stewards are folks entrusted with the possessions of someone else. They're called to use those possessions in a way that serves, in a way that honors their master. And that's us. Everything we possess, our physical possessions, certainly, but also the gifts, the abilities, the insights, the understanding, all of that, belongs to God and has been loaned to us. So we're to use it all in service to Him. Boy, it helps to remember that. You start getting a little bitter if you find that you're always using your stuff, your stuff, for other people. But if you remember it's not your stuff after all, that you have nothing, you are impoverished. Everything belongs to the Lord. He's just loaned it to you for a time, well, then it's so easy to use it in service to others. If I think it's all mine, I won't want to use it for other people because, you know, it might be worn out then and I won't be able to have it for my own use. But if I recognize God gave me this, whatever this is, 
in order to serve the people around me, then I can recognize that when that wears out, he's going to give something else to replace it. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. His arm is not too short to continue to supply. Whether it's with a, a physical possession, some tool that you have, or, or whether it's with your time and your effort and your interest. So serve them and do so gratefully. I mean, we were made, we were made for this purpose of serving God by serving the people around us. In sin, for a time, we lost that ability. We were cut off from God. We were blinded to our true purpose. But Jesus restores us. He restores us to a love for God. He opens our eyes. He allows us to see this is why you were made. This is why you exist. To serve God by serving others in His name. So let us devote ourselves to ministering intentionally as stewards, as ambassadors for God. When you speak... Speak as those speaking the very words of God. That's weighty, isn't it? You go to visit that friend that you know is going through a hard time. And you think, I don't know what to say to him. Okay? Pray. Jesus said when they haul you before magistrates... Don't worry about what to say because the Spirit will be there to give you the words that you need at that time. And the same is true in that trying time. If you've been spending time in prayer, if you've been spending time in the Word, you have all that you need to say to them. You just need to know which thing at this time they need. So pray that God would give you the wisdom to be able to comfort and encourage them and then go and be with them. Sit with them. Love them. Weep with them. And when the moment comes when they need that word from the Lord, speak it from the Lord. You might not remember it's from this particular chapter and verse of Isaiah, but you can say, you know, I remember somewhere in Isaiah it says, that's all they need. They need to remember from you the comfort of the word of the Lord. And when you minister, use it to serve others. In the strength that God supplies. So when they say, man, I I can't help you enough. There's no way I could have done this on my own. Point them to the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm just so glad God gave me the ability to help you in this. And then don't go bragging about it to everybody. Just be satisfied that you were able to show them that God is the one who supplied their need. In order that in everything God may be glorified. It's not you that needs to be lifted up. It's God. When an ambassador serves, how many ambassadors? Young people, you've taken civics classes. You're plugged into the internet. How many ambassadors of the United States do you know? I don't think it's right for Christians to bet, but if it was, I think you could lay some pretty good money that most people's answer would be a big old zero. Why? Because the ambassador's not there to become known himself. The ambassador is there to represent his country and his president. We are not there. We're not serving. We're not speaking. We're not encouraging. We're not there 
to honor ourselves. We're there to honor the Lord. We're there to promote King Christ. We're there to point them to the kingdom of God. And if we do our job right, we'll just be a footnote. But Christ will be on display. And what an immense privilege that is. Beloved, we are ambassadors for our faithful, gracious God and His kingdom. So let us strive to live as ambassadors through prayer, through self-control, deepening that relationship we have with the Lord so that we will love Him more truly. With humility, using the gifts that God has given us to serve those around us and then delighting in that opportunity. To glorify not ourselves, but the Lord who sent us, who equipped us, who uses us as his instruments. As you embrace that lifestyle, God will receive the glory. And you, you will learn to rejoice in his service, discovering that this is what you were made to do. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious privilege of being able to to be your ambassadors to be servants who point others unto you. We pray that you would help us to do so with with joy and with fervency, eager to show others what you are like, to tell others what an amazing God we serve. And Lord, as we do so, knit us together as a body so that the world looking on us might become jealous, eager to have what we have been given, that unity, that belonging, that joy. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If we are serving as ambassadors to the Lord, we will be knit together. We will be loving one another, expressing hospitality toward one another, delighting in one another. So let's acknowledge that as we stand and sing together, number 447, Blessed be the tie that binds, number 447.